Normally we're um, going through Mark on uh, Sunday mornings, but I felt um, compelled to interrupt that with a, a little impromptu study from Matthew 24, and it's very impromptu. It's off of, I'm going to use my, my phone and just kind of go with some things that I've been learning. Um, but uh, So be prepared for that. It'll be more like a discussion and pointing out some things, and we'll see what applies to us. But I think a lot of it will uh, be relevant for what we're going through today. Um, okay, we're, we're running low on time, but I want to jump into this. Turn to Matthew 24. I'm going to read a big portion of it, and I want you to know up front, before I start reading, we'll pray first, but before I start reading, this is both a very large swath of Scripture, a very big discourse from Jesus. It's known as the Olivet Discourse, and it is some choppy waters when it comes to her- hermeneutically. It's, it's, not, um, it's not easy to parse your way through. But for our purposes, I can at least give you a general tour. There's no way we'll be able to get through all of, uh, you know, in detail in one day. This is, and and by the way, this discourse is recorded in in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in Mark chapter 13, so we will be back to it and we'll handle it in even greater detail when we get to Mark's version of it. Um, But suffice it to say, this will be a good preliminary for our study in Mark because for the Olivet Discourse, you really are in danger of misinterpreting this text unless you read all three, unless you understand all three. Um, Every writer, every author um, tells the story according to what's serving their purposes of writing their particular gospel, okay? So the details, although it's it's very copy-paste, there are some details that are different in all three uh, writings of the Olivet Discourse. Um, not different contradictory-wise, but different in emphasis because the three authors are trying to emphasize something uh, that's important to them, um, which is why I chose Matthew today. Okay, so anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's pray and we'll jump, we'll jump right in. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom through this. Um, I believe that you want to speak to our church through this passage. I think it's very pertinent to what we are facing in the times that we are facing today. Would you please give me wisdom and um, grace and delicacy um, when it comes to this passage and great balance when it comes to this passage? Um, Lord, uh, I'm, I'm just depending on you for this because I believe this is what you want. So bless this time. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Let's start just by reading it. I'll I'll read it to you. Um, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these? You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, Well, see that no one deceives you or leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. 
And these are, these are just the beginnings of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall, fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be, uh, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. I'm kind of highlighting stuff as I go here that I want to talk about. <laughs> but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We're now in verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is, to take what is in, in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant... And for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may, be in winter, may not be in winter or on the Sabbath, for then there will be great tribulation, such as, not, has, such, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. I'm going to highlight that. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. That, uh, then, if anyone says to you, look here, is the, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go there. If they say, look, he's in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation, I'm in verse 29 now if you're following along. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heavens the signs of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds and from one end of, the, of heaven to another. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and, put up, and puts out its, its leaves, you know that the summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. We're almost there. But concerning that day and that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And we'll, we'll stop there for now. We might go a little further later. Okay, um, back up to verse 1. Let me show you the context of this. It's very important. Um... Oops, I went too far. I'm not used to scrolling the Bible on my phone, so be patient with me. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, do you see all these things? Do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down to you. Um, with, we need to place this within its literary context. In chapter 23, Jesus just gave his last public um, 
his public preaching, and it was a, it was a polemic against the leaders, the religious leaders of Jerusalem. And you remember, it, it's this famous chapter 23 is, woe to you, you scribes. I mean, basically, Jesus is very direct. He's very intense, um, and he's not mincing his words at this point. This is a, a, a side of Jesus that um, we don't see very often, but when we do see it, it means a lot. He's coming straight up against them and saying, woe to you, 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 you sons of vipers. You, know, you go all the way to make a convert, and you make them twice a son of hell as you are. I mean, they're, they're intense words. And at the very end of chapter 23, Jesus says he weeps for Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how I've longed to gather you as a hen would gather her chicks, but you are not willing. Um, and I want, I want to point out something here about the nature of Jesus that you need to keep in mind when he makes these kinds of intense statements. Um, and in general, let me just tell you this, do you know that hatred and love are, are at least theologically, and I think, in, I think uh, uh, anthropologically when it comes to humans, hatred and love are, are usually two sides of one coin. In other words, um, when I am dealing with a, some kind of a um, counseling situation with two people that are at odds with each other, the more fired up they are, especially married people, the more fired up they are, the more angry they get, the more enraged they are, I typically have a lot of hope for that relationship. Because you cannot be so upset unless you're so much in love. Usually how it works is, I just, you know, what, they would, what they're trying to say is, I love this person so much and I'm so mad because it's not working. I'm at the end of myself. When I get a couple coming to me that is... Um, we could use the word not caring anymore, dead, numb. That's when I start to get a little worried. Because usually passion can shoot out with hatred, anger, or love. And they usually are the same thing. You see that with Jesus in, verse, in chapter 23. Jesus comes out with this really passionately angry polemic against the religious leaders and it builds and builds and builds and builds and builds to almost him weeping over them in longing for love oh jerusalem jerusalem how i've longed to gather you the way a a a hen would gather her chicks but you were not willing you feel his frustration there and it's the same frustration you feel all the way through the prophets god himself saying about israel i you're a wife to me but you keep going astray. You're like my children that I've raised and that I, I taught to walk as you were toddling along and I took care of you and you've, now you want nothing to do with me. You, you, feel, you feel God is a very emotional person. You feel the anguish through the Bible. And that's what you're feeling with Jesus here. So it's important that we understand that. And now where we pick it up in chapter 24, Jesus is leaving, now leaving the temple, and there's major prophetic significance in this. He leaves the temple grounds for the, for the last time in his ministry. And the next time he goes into Jerusalem, he will not come back out alive, okay? He's leaving now, and the disciples come to him, and they say, look at, this, look at the temple grounds. Look how beautiful they are. It was Herod's temple in Jesus' day, was one of the wonders of the world. And at this point, by the way, it wasn't even finished. Did you know that Herod's temple was finished in 64 AD? Rome burnt down that temple six years later, in 70 AD. 
So it's still under construction at this point when Jesus is talking here. This is around 30, uh, this is around th- uh, 32, some, somewhere in there. It's right before he's about to get uh, crucified, so 33 AD, somewhere in there. So it's still not even done, but it's still grand enough. It's beautiful enough. In fact, there's some people, some, um, and I was going to try to bring some pictures, but I just didn't have a chance, that have um, historically tried to computerize, recreate Herod's temple, and it is incredible. Some of these stones that were thrown down. This, this, what Jesus just said, was fulfilled in 70 AD. General Titus, uh, um, the Roman general, came in, burned down the city, burned down the temple. Some of you know that the gold, it was so hot that the gold melted into the cracks of the rocks, and so there became a great uh, deconstruction project by the Romans to take apart those big stones to get the, the gold that had seeped in the cracks. And you can still see those stones today. They're right outside the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. There's big, massive stones. And if you see pictures of them, you'll see a human next to them, and there's these huge stones. I mean, it's just a feat to get them up, a feat to take them down. All of this was, was fulfilled, what Jesus said. And here's what's interesting. So Jesus leaves the temple. They're so impressed by this, and Jesus says, do you see all these, do you not? And they're like, well, yeah, we see them all. He says, truly, I say to you, there will not be one left here, one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then he goes to the Mount, the Mount of Olives east of there and sits on the Mount of Olives and gives this polemic. This, is, this eerily mirrors Ezekiel chapter 11. In Ezekiel chapter 11, you see the glory of God after God shows Ezekiel all these abominations going on in Jerusalem and in the temple. You see the glory of God in Ezekiel chapter 11 lift up, depart, and go east and proclaim that Babylon is going to come and destroy that temple. And that's exactly what ended up happening. You, you can imagine to the dismay. You, hear, you see what Matthew's trying to say here. Jesus is departing the temple, the glory, the presence of God, after he just went in there and showed us all what's wrong with the place. This is polemic with these leaders. He prophetically moves out of the temple east and says, you know how horrible it was with Babylon? It's going to happen again. Now, here's what's interesting. The disciples ask a really interesting question. They actually ask three questions. Because to them, this is troubling. This is super troubling. If he says not one stone. For us, it loses its... That's why I wanted to bring pictures of the grandeur of this temple. It was the pride of the Jewish people. It meant the presence of God was there. It was their hope. And so for Jesus to say, basically, it's all going to be torn down, in their minds, is, is synonymous with the end of it all. That's why it's bringing up... Bigger questions than even this event. And maybe the disciples didn't understand that there's going to be many events in this. But look at the question that they ask. Um, He sat down, this is verse 3, he sat down on the Mount of Olives, and the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, because they're troubled, when will these things, that's, that's the destruction of Herod's temple that Jesus was just talking about, when will these things be? And, here's a second question, what will be the sign of your coming? And, a third question, and the end of the age. And this is what makes this chapter really hard for theologians and scholars to parse out. Because they ask three questions, and Jesus doesn't answer them in order. He he answers the third one first, 
then goes to the second one, and they're kind of intermixed in there when it comes to Herod's temple and all of those things, and it's not exactly chronological. There's a lot of um, ancient writing style in this, in the way that these uh, recordings of the Olivet Discourse were written, um, and it's hard for us Westerners to understand. But for our purposes, I think we can get through. One is you need to understand, so let's look at these questions. When will these things be, these things in context being what Jesus just talked about? Secondly, what will the sign of your coming be? And thirdly, the end of the age. Now, some of your translations might say the end of the world. And that's a little deceptive. That is, that's, um, that is overlaying a modern thought over an ancient Jewish way of saying the end of this time. Or the, uh, we have plenty of rabbinical writings that show us that when a Jewish person said the end of the age, they were talking about the end of that age and what would bring in the age of the Messiah. When will the Messiah take over and rule the earth? That's what they were talking about. Not the end of the world, not those types of things. And Jesus is going to answer that particular question, and that is, I think, pertinent for us. Um, And Jesus starts out, by describing, like I said, he's going to describe the, the third one, the third question first, the, uh, the end of the age. In other words, this age, right before his second coming. That's what we're talking about. Right before his second coming is something that scholars call the church age, okay? It is the time of Jesus' ascension um, till the time of his second coming, And again, don't conflate the two. There's the church age and then there's the time of his second coming. Christians believe that Jesus will be coming back. In fact, Christians, unlike any other philosophy that you're going to hear out there, this is what makes you and I uniquely different when we're processing what's going on right now. Christians believe that the only real hope for this world is when Jesus comes back to rule and reign on this earth. That's what we believe. We don't, we, we, we don't ignore other things. We think, we think certain things like would be helpful, like policy reform, um, uh, you know, all, of, all of our opinions about those things, those matter. But ultimately, we don't put our full hope in those things. Ultimately, we know that that evil will be eradicated from the cosmos once and for all upon Jesus Christ's second return. There will be no more disease. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more death. There will be no more animosity and war and all of those things. That's what we are waiting for, you understand? And the disciples, in a sense, were too. They believe the same thing. We have a common hope. They believe all of the striving will cease. Jesus, tell us when that's going to happen. They are longing for it to happen. And this is Jesus' response. First, he's going to describe the church age, which I will suggest to you is our age. See if you recognize it. Look what Jesus says. See to it that none of you is deceived. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginnings of the birth pains. Okay, we could go on from there, but I want to stop there. Um, And I want to make a note. So, a lot of... I have to set a lot of this up for us to think of it right. It's important. A lot of people portray these things as uh, birth pains, meaning 
when these things start to happen at their height, it's, it's right before Jesus' turn is imminent right at that point. But in reality, what this is talking about is that these things that he's describing here and that he could go on to describe will be a pattern of life that will, that will like birth pain, like contractions, will, will, be, will um, get... Um, uh, less far apart, they'll happen more frequently and more frequently, and they'll ramp up until that, mo- until that moment. So, here's my point. In every generation, f- in fact, from the temple period on, in fact, you can match these things with what happened before 70 AD. All of these things you can find in history, arguably, before 70 AD. In other words, these thi- this is history repeating itself. And these things keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. And here we are. This is, in other words, this is par for the course for the church age. Okay? And, there, and the reason I need to get specific with that will come, will come later. But let's look at some of these things. See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Um, and many will, and, and will try to lead many astray. Messiahism. People, leaders, leaders raising up saying, I can fix this. I can make this right. I can bring hope. Any of that going on? So we tend to pass this up because we think of it religiously, that someone's going to come up and say, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Son of God. In our land, um, we don't prize religious speak, but we tr- our religion is politics. And in the political world, it's very common. Um, I think of Barack Obama claimed to be hope. Um, Donald Trump claimed to fix it all. That's all Messiah speak. That's all, and they're and leading many astray. In other words, put your hope in me, and I can fix this. I can do this. That's part of what's going to happen, and that's going to happen more and more. Let's keep going. See, the, uh, he says, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. Okay, so these, this would be... Um, Local wars, because there's a change here. Now look at he says the end, he stops there. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for these things must take place. But the end is not yet. In other words, not yet. I'm not about to come. Okay. In other words, there will be local skirmishes, local fight fighting. Now what? Watch after after verse seven things are taken up a notch for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom pause there that is beyond local wars in fact um, in the greek what he's talking about there is a world war in other words it will progress from local wars to all the kingdoms of the earth at once fighting against each other and then look what he says there will be famines and earthquakes in various places and these are but the beginnings of birth pains. You see it's ramping up. First he says, now that's, first there'll be local skirmishes and messiahs. But that, wait, that's, no, we haven't even started yet. Then there'll be world war. So that's why many scholars believe that this, um, the birth pains, quote unquote, began with World War I, the first world war in history, and go on from there. The famines, yes. Of course, I don't even have to talk about that. Earthquakes. Uh, Haiti's earthquake uh, just a little bit ago was, there's, uh, another one was seven point something on the, you know, killed so many people. Um, on and on it goes. And these are but the beginnings of birth pains. 
Um, again, this is the image that the Bible gives over and over again, a repeated set of circumstances that gets, that, that gets more successive and, and um, faster in between times. It becomes more and more and more and more. And they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. This certainly happened with the disciples. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. Does that sound familiar? A lot of hatred going on. And he says it again. Many false prophets will arise and try to lead many astray. And because of lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. Talking about a, a time where people will be so divided and so hateful of one another. Um, that society itself threatens to break apart. But the one who endures to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and a testimony to all nations. Now we go to this thing called the abomination of desolation. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house and let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak and alas for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days pray that your flight may not be in the winter or on the sabbath for then for then there will be great tribulation do you see it's getting do you see what do you hear his language here you will be given tribulation that was in verse um wherever it was verse 9 and now he talks about, now there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, nor will ever be. This will, in other words, it, the same type of thing will grow to a level of, of an unprecedented, um, uh, it will be unprecedented at this point, the level of it. Not the, the, you notice there's the same kinds of things. Um, uh, false prophets, tribulation, but the level of it, the quality of it, the, the way it's being, it will be so intense, it'll be unlike, the intensity will be unlike it that's ever seen before. Now, here's what's, what throws us off a little bit here. There's a, a hermeneutical principle, an observation in the Bible known as du a, a double referent. And what that means is, is that when, a, when a, a, the Bible talks about a certain event, it can, meet, it can be fulfilled in several different ways throughout history repeating itself. And the abomination of, of desolation is one of those things. We see it several times. Basically, it's, it's this, uh, the prophet Daniel prophet, prophesied that when the, when the Antichrist comes, a man who will demand to be worshipped, just like all these false prophets, again, so you see this ramping up. There will be people say, follow me. That's all going to happen. False messiahs, that's all going to happen. It will ramp up to where an unprecedented man, um, the, the Bible calls the Antichrist, will deceive most of the world to follow him and to come against God. But we see miniature versions of that along history's timescale, say, Okay. The, the, uh, the abomination that causes desolation is when the Antichrist will go into the Jewish temple and will defile it and will demand that uh, everyone worship him. And at that point, the Bible says that the Jewish people will know that they've been fooled. That will be kind of the point where they go, oops, 
Darn it. Now, versions of this have happened. Most notably, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, before Christ, I think the 300s, he um, marched into Jerusalem. He slaughtered a pig on the altar in the temple and waged war against, against the Jews. That was, a ver- that was a very strong likeness of what Daniel described. So if you think, oh, this is one event in time, you can be fooled by this. Another, uh, another example is um, Titus, General Titus in, in AD 70. Similar. And we have um, historical record that AD 70, Jews did what Jesus said. They fled. They, f- they got out of there. They didn't stop for their cloaks. They didn't get provisions. They just ran at that point. That was a, another fulfillment of this. And yet... Um, Nero, Emperor Nero is another example of something that's similar to that or foreshadows. Again, think of um, birthing pains. It's going to keep, history will repeat itself, repeat itself, repeat itself, and it will get more and more intense to at some point there will be an unprecedented uh, display of this. And at that point we'll know that we're entering into something called a great tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until, or, or never, never will be. But here's what I want to point out to you guys. Notice that Jesus says down in verse 36, concerning that day or that hour, in other words, concerning exactly when Jesus is coming a second time, look what he says. No one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I think that's brilliant. You know, because if he didn't say that, well, and it hasn't really stopped many people, but if he didn't say that, there'd be such date forecasting. You know there would. But instead, Jesus, God, sovereignly keeps us in this tension. And that's what I want to talk to you about. Now we get to the point of what, what was on my heart today. Because we live in this tension. We live in the church age, if you want to call it that, whatever you want to call it, but the, um, the end of the age, to use this text's language, the end of the age before Jesus comes, I believe that we're firmly in that. Um, and we can trace these events through history. We, one of the qualities of this is an is a age of tension. What do we do? How do Christians who are seeing these things who are uh, smart enough to to know that this cannot be coincidence when you take, um, you know, many will fall away and betray one another, falling away, a deconstruction of Christianity is huge right now. What about about the Christians that are leaving Christianity and leaving evangelical? He said it was going to happen. It's all right here. Okay? It's all here. So, um, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do right now? What do we do right now when things are getting harder and harder? What do we do right now when hatred is growing so strong? Even amongst Christians, there's so much fighting, so much splintering of the Christian faith. How do we handle ourselves during this time? I, you know, we can conjecture until we're blue in the face. I love to come back to the scripture. Jesus tells us what to do. Look at, look at, he tells us straight up. There's, a, I think, at least four or five things that I noticed here. Let's see if I can find them again. Um, verse four, Jesus answered them, Number one, see that you're not deceived. Be smart. See that you're not deceived. 
in an age of so much misinformation, in an age where there's so many voices talking to us from all different sides, and I think anybody that's honest has got to say it is difficult for even, even the most smartest people to discern what is true and what is not. I read an article the other day, or everything's the other day, it might have been two weeks ago, but I read an article some point uh, before this that displayed that in the Biden administration and the CDC, they also are confused. <laughs> There's, it displayed this kind of round table. You know, we tend to think someone's got to know. I don't know if that's true. It's so hard to discern. It's so hard to know. It's so hard to know. So here's what I'll say. If you think, if you think you're not deceived, that might, be the first, that might be the first sign to know that you are. If you subscribe to a certain side or a certain ideology or a certain whatever it might be, other than the Bible, and you equate it with the Bible, whether it's left or right or Whatever, whatever position you take and all the, all the different sub-factions and everything else, listen, if you come to a point where you think, yeah, I, can, I, have, I have a perch where I can see further than everyone else, I, I immediately say to myself, wait a second. Don't be deceived because everyone's trying to deceive. And I've, I've got to say this. I've said it before and I'll say it. I, got, I feel like I have to say it so many times. When it comes to politics... Christianity is political, it is not partisan. Do you understand that? That's not even controversial when it comes to the Bible. Christianity is political, it is not partisan. In other words, if you think, or anybody thinks, that um, being a Christian is equal to a certain political party, you are, you are now deceived. Christianity... Um, Every culture, every political system on the, on the face of the planet at all times will love a lot of things about Christianity. There are certain things in our neighborhood, you know, obviously our city is extremely liberal. There are a lot of things that I'm starting to really get to know our neighbors now. It's been two something years and I'm finally having some really great conversations with our neighbors in the neighborhood. There's a lot of things about the Bible that they love. A lot of things about what Jesus said that they love. But there comes a certain point where they, a line is crossed and they say, I hate that part. That's an abomination to me. And the same is true with republicanism or the conservative side of things. There's certain things that they love about the Bible, but there will be certain things that will challenge them to their core. Do you, and here's what I'm saying. I'm saying, I think we are, we are being deceived into thinking that Christianity is equal to whatever political party or whatever thing might be. You need to understand, there is, Hebrews chapter 10 says, there, we have no enduring city, that's a political system, government system, economic system, we have no enduring city here. If you're looking for heaven on this earth, you are not going to find it. There will always be rub. There will always be tension. It, you know, I hear friends, let's just move to Texas. There will be tension there, just the different kind. You, and, and you guys, you've got to understand this when it comes to the Bible. Don't be deceived. Okay. 
And one way that you can be deceived, I saw this great picture of two people sitting at dinner, a, you know, a romantic picture, the candles lit, and the woman's on this side, there's this romantic dinner, and both, both of them are on their phones. On some kind of social media platform. Don't be deceived, be careful. Be careful. Read it, be a part of it, but be suspicious, it's okay. Either way, no matter who you're reading, be suspicious. Don't be deceived. That's the first thing. Okay, here's another thing. Secondly, look at verse 6. He says, see that you are not alarmed. Number one, don't be deceived. Secondly, don't panic. Don't panic. Why? Look what he says. For this must take place. This must take place. Any, for me, and this is why I felt like this would be helpful, any message from any source that, that tries to get me to panic, either explicitly or implicitly, I'm immediately suspicious of. If there's ever a fuel that says, if we don't, our country's going to die. We're losing it all. I, I immediately take a step back and go, okay. I, I smile and nod typically. But in my heart, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to give in to that fuel. Because Jesus said, don't panic. Don't be alarmed, for these things must be. If you have a sense that if you don't, then the world will come down. I, for me, reading this, I can immediately know that that message might be polluted. Not, not, now, no message is completely polluted or it would be obvious, right? All messages have enough truth in them. It's complicated. But don't be deceived. Secondly, don't panic. Don't freak out. So what do we do? First, don't be deceived. Secondly, don't panic. But look, verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The word endures there means to live a faithful, upright life. In other words, be faithful. Live a faithful, upright life. In other words, live out your Christianity as good neighbors and great citizens of whatever land that you're in. Knowing that this is not your home, your pilgrims you're passing through, but while you're here, be faithful, be kind, be a good neighbor, stand up for what's right. Absolutely stand up for what's right, but do it with love, do it with kindness. Endure, those that endure to the end. This is not talking about... Um, well, let me get to the next point. So first, don't be deceived. Secondly, don't be afraid. Um, thirdly, endure to the end. Be faithful. Be faithful. And look, right after that, it says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all na nations. That would be preach on. This is, I think, this is coordinates to us as how we're going to navigate our way through this difficult time. Number one, you guys, don't be deceived. Secondly, don't panic. Anything that tries to make your heart rate go up, you can go, wait a second. And if you, know, if you notice Jesus, he doesn't have an anxious heart to him. If you study, you know, in Mark, we're studying Jesus. We're looking at him. Not studying about him. We're trying to be acquainted with the man, who he is. And one of the things that's remarkable about him is that he's not panicked. He's not going around with his hair on fire. He's not going around going, oh my gosh, if I don't get there, then uh, 
Disciples, move it. You know, he doesn't have, he's got an incredible work ethic, but it's not fueled by a sense of, I'm, I'm holding it all together. My, my greatest, I think, proof text of this that comes to my mind is of his friend um, Lazarus that passed away. You remember that? Lazarus gets sick. His sisters, Mary and Martha, send messages to Jesus, and they say, Jesus, your friend Lazarus is sick. Come now. Jesus drags his feet. He is not impulsed by a panicky message. Come, we're Lazarus. If you don't come, we're going to lie. And you know, they, said, they, they say that to Jesus when he shows up and Lazarus is already dead. They say, if you would have been there. You hear those messages all, if we just, if you just. If people would just do this, if people would just do that, all we need is for this group of people to go and do that. And then, you know, And it rips people apart. That's what happens. People, the love of many grows cold. Did you know that 15% of people in our nation have terminated a loving, close relationship over COVID-19? Including parents, children. They've said, I cannot associate with you anymore. It's ripping us apart. It is. It is. 15%. And people make it political. 15. I think it's like one American for every 500, one in every 500 Americans have, have lost some kind of relationship of some sort. Look, what can we do? Be faithful. Preach on, and that's what we do. Okay, preaching, preaching on. Here's what I think is beautiful. Listen what he says. He says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. This gospel of the kingdom. What you do not see ever in the Bible is Christians out picketing against the government. And yet... The power of the gospel is enough to topple so many oppressive regimes. We've seen that throughout history. Um, my, fa- my favorite thing is uh, Paul. I think it's in Acts chapter 14, I think, where he's in Ephesus. And the, the, he, what is Paul doing for two years in Ephesus? He's teaching the gospel. He's not coming against the goddess of Diana I'm sure he had problems with the goddess of Diana. I'm sure he had conversations with his friends about the God. But he was preaching the gospel for two years to the point where the Bible says that all of Asia heard about the gospel. And because the gospel took place in people's hearts, they just weren't interested in Diana anymore. Caused a major economic problem. All the, you know, Diana, uh, you know, gift shops were going out of business. And the, 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 um, you know, the metal workers union that was making all these shrines of Diana, they thought our business is having problems and they came against Paul and, and um, persecuted him. But not because he did not say, Christians, now that you're here, let's go make some signs and let's go out to City Hall or let's go to the Temple of Diana and let's say, it must come down, it must come down. They didn't do that. 
They just preached the love of God and it, the power of the, of the gospel changed people's hearts so radically that they were no longer interested in those types of things anymore. At one point before this story, the, uh, the people of Ephesus had such radical conversions, they used to wear these spell books around their necks that they would pray to and that they would, it, it, these demonic things. Um, and they were quite expensive. I didn't, I, I obviously came today without notes, so I don't, I can't give you a dollar amount, but it was like, some people say in the millions of dollars range, and they took them off and threw them down and burned them. See, okay, that's a change that does not come through policy, does not come through uh, more education, does not come through, uh, you know, all of those things that are good, good things, but that's a change that came straight from the heart. Something changed inside and brought out what we're all wanting to see in our, t- in our, in our town. We're all wanting to see it in our town. We all want to see homelessness go away in our town. We all want to see COVID go away. We all want to see those things. We can be unified about that. But Christians are unique and really powerful because we don't reduce the problems to um, education or higher taxes or whatever, whatever it might be. Those things might help. But we Christians, when we preach on, we're going for the soul, see, an interchange that happens. The kingdom of God happens one heart at a time. Here's my point. Yes, endure. Yes, be faithful. But why should you endure? What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, I, I want you there during this time. I said uh, in our home group um, Thursday, we were talking about all the crazy stuff going on. And I I said to them at the end, I'm actually, there's part of me that's really excited to be here. (laughs) You You know, I... You know, you study the great generation of World War II. You know, you you study those guys and you think to yourself, man, what an incredible bunch of people. And there's part of you that thinks, man, I I wish I could be a part of them. Or great generations like that. People that have done great things. There's something in all of us, I think, that says, I want to do that. I want to rise to something like that. This is our time. And Jesus... I, think, I, don't see, I don't think Jesus is saying, oops, uh, you know, I can't come right now. I'm really busy. I'll come there as soon as I can, so just hang on. I don't think that's the message. I think the message is, I am there through you. I have strategically placed you in Seattle for such a time as this. What's the famous verse that he says? You are, I send you out as sheep among wolves, right? I've strategically placed you in the world, all around the globe, right now, for such a time as this. You are my answer. So here's what you do. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Secondly, don't panic. 
This is a, these are good, very, very practical things. Don't panic. If you, if you feel your heart rate start to go up, go, okay, wait a second. Some of that might be true, but the response is generating, I need to keep that in check. Don't be panicked. It must happen. Don't run around, don't run around like, like your hair's on fire, okay? Don't cut off important relationships. Don't lose friends over this. Be, that, that'll happen naturally. <laughs> People will hate you, as the passage says. People are going to hate you. People are going to throw you out. That's, that's, part of, that's part of the course. But don't panic. Thirdly, be faithful. Endure. Be faithful. Take your kids to school. Pick them up. I, I, you know, I, I think when the first, when, when Israel, when the Babylonians came, leveled Israel and took Israel back to Babylon. Horrible situation. Horrible situation. You know, imagine, can you imagine if all of a sudden, as I'm preaching, jets fly over and helicopters come down and the North Koreans are here and they just beat America and they take us back to North Korea. You know, we would make a movie out of this to supplant from the inside. and come. But instead, the message is that Jeremiah, the prophet, sends from God to the people in Babylon, in Babylon. He says, pray for the peace of your city. Plant gardens. Pray for the shalom of your city. That's, that's how you supplant. That's very un-American. I know it's, it's very anticlimactic. But that's, you see, we win through weakness. We win through service. We win through love. Very powerful. So do your thing and do it with a great, with a quality about you that's filled with the Spirit and that is extremely powerful. Um, Preach on. Don't be quiet. I'm not saying to shut up and not say anything. I'm saying, no, no, no. Preach on. But what do you preach? The kingdom of this gospel. The kingdom of this gospel. If you find that the majority of what's coming out of your mouth is your opinions about the kingdoms that's going on here rather than the kingdom of this gospel. Adjust that. Adjust that. Talk about God's love. Talk about his redemption. Talk about the fact that your hope is not in the here and now, but in in who's coming after. That's so foreign and so attractive to this world. Our world is panicking because this is all they've got. And they're finding it's coming apart. It's scary for everybody. And yet Christians come up and say, yeah, it is scary. It's really hard. I don't, want, I don't know what to make of it. But you know what? My hope's not in his. It's for, give that to your children. Preach the gospel to your children. Okay. And then I want to end, finally, there's a balance here. Notice on the one hand, and this is my final point, I think. Yes. Notice on the one hand, that Jesus says on the, first, on the front end, don't panic. But then, in a part of the scripture that I didn't show because it was just too bloody long, um, verse 44 says, therefore, you also must be ready. So here's what we find, is this beautiful balance. On the one hand, don't panic. Don't, don't run around with your hair on fire. But on the other hand, don't be ignorant. Don't be lazy. Be ready for the coming of the kingdom of God. And there's this beautiful balance. Right now in Christianity, 
at large, there is the one, the biggest noisemakers are ones on either side of that extreme. You've got folks on one side of the extreme, and I read, uh, they're scholars that I read all the time, that apocalyptic language and the end of the age and that kind of thing can mean, apocalyptic language to some scholars can mean anything as long as it's not talking about Jesus coming. I don't, it boggles my mind when I read some of these guys. They, they, they can relate it to a whole bunch of things except for when Jesus comes. In other words, they're not, and there's this impression that we shouldn't worry about that. We, you know, it's not about that. That was, that was it, it's almost used as a, a, to sideswipe it. That was apocalyptic. It's metaphorical. Oh, it's, you know, it's, uh, Daniel saw these things. He didn't know how to describe them. So he, he, you know, John saw these things in the modern world. He didn't know how to describe them. So he blah, 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 type of a deal. Don't worry about that. Just be faithful here. That's one extreme. On the other extreme, we've got Christianity that, that are panicking. The end of the world is here. And there's prophecy charts. And there's all sorts of things. And there's, I mean, you know, you've got people that I also watch that have zero business um, educating people on end. And yet they've been given a platform about end times prophecy. And they don't know, I mean, truly, they don't know how to do that. They're, they don't know how to play by the Bible's own rules. And so they say a lot of things, and they're deceiving a lot of people. And, getting, and it's, it gets people all ramped up and panicky. And here Jesus would, see, would say, neither to both of those extremes, but a little bit of both. In other words, don't be afraid, don't panic. And I love that he put there, as, 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 when it comes to the exact day and exact hour that I'm coming, no one knows. I don't even know. The angels don't even know. That's reserved for God, for, for the Father, for Father God. There's a sense that it could be, maybe. But on the other extreme, be ready. Be ready. Be watching. Have your ears perk up. Pray about things. When you hear stuff, pray. Talk to each other about it. Think about it. There should be a, high, a very strong desire for Jesus to come back. If you love this world and you love your loved ones and you have any concern as a Christian for what's going on in this world, you should be uh, praying for the day that Jesus comes back because he is the answer. He is the answer. He is the real Messiah. Amen. If you love your friends, if you, if you care about the city, if you care about the world, there should be a, Lord God, come back. But not to the point where it is, uh, got you anxious, and you're, or dividing, or judgmental on other people, looking down on others, looking down on the church. It was so sad to me recently to see a video, I had to turn it off, to see a video, unfortunately, of a Calvary Chapel, a large, large Calvary Chapel, that decided for their Sunday morning service, they would make their entire service about bashing and coming against another Calvary Chapel in the same state. And I couldn't hardly believe what I was watching. 
they read a, a quick Bible verse so that it could be about the Bible, and then they put quotes of this other bad pastor on the screen, and I heard the whole congregation go, boo! And I just thought, man, that's so sad. And yet, and yet, I can be grieved but not shocked because Jesus said it. He said it. The love of many will grow cold. Even the, people will fall away from the faith. It says it right, I can't remember what verse, but people are going to fall away from the faith. You know, Christianity's losing the culture wars. People are deconstructing. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm an ex-evangelist. You know, you know, ex-evangelist. That's the new term for I'm not a Christian anymore. All of those types of things are going on and we, it makes us panic. Hey, look, Jesus said, people are going to fall away. It's going to happen. Don't be deceived. Don't freak out. Be faithful. Preach on. And be ready. It's five, isn't it? Five. I hope that's helpful. It's been helpful for me to navigate what we're going through and to keep me walking the line that I think the Lord wants me to walk, and I hope that I wanted to offer that as help to you as well. Let's, let's stand up and let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are grieved, but probably not shocked. Not, well, not probably. You're not shocked. And thank you that you are in control. And we hail you this morning as the only hope for our world for ourselves, for our families. Pray, Lord God, that you would give us wisdom and that we would learn from you. I, we're coming to a point in Mark where there's this beautiful line in Mark that he, when, he's, when you're calling your disciples, it says, he called his disciples so that they would be with him just to be with you, to let you soak into who we are, and then to be like you, and then to do what you would do if you were us. And Lord, we don't see you running around panicky. Just so, you're, asleep in the, you're asleep in the boat as the storm's raging around you. You're sleeping. Hmm. There's an old John Newton line that says, uh, I'm out in the storm, uh, or I, I fe the fear of dying, um, I'm out in the storm, but, when Je but if Jesus is in the boat, I smile at the storm. And Lord, that's just so true. With you with us, we don't have to panic. We can be calm. We can love, love radically. We can preach the gospel of the true kingdom. I pray that you would empower that for us. And Lord, thank you that you went before us. You went into the eye of the storm yourself and died from it. You let the ultimate storm of death consume you on the cross so that we don't have to go through the cosmic death, separation from God. We celebrate that today in taking communion. In Jesus' name, amen.